You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Live from the home of the New York Yankees' favorite punching bag. Oh, it's the two five two sports talk radio is done by academics. I am not quite disillusioned Twins fan. Chris Garrett's joined by Chris Moore, who can't believe you went there. Wow, and Sam Mulberry, who wants to point out that this is going to drop on Wednesday, and by then, this the the tides will have shifted Completely in the different series, story. and you're going to sound terrible. That's fine. <laughs> I stand by it right now because. <laughs> Man, I, I took my son. To, we don't have cable or satellite, so we didn't watch the first game. We're not going to see any of the other games. But I told him I'd take him to see a game. So we went to a local restaurant, <sighs> watched it. It was okay. Mm-hmm. Like, we are kind of hanging in there. And then the D.D. Gregorius Grand Slam. And then three more runs for good measure in the inning. And uh, he was pretty crestfallen. So I feel like I'm, yeah. I'm expressing my my nine-year-old son's uh, grief. This is the first, like, actual playoff series he's ever seen. Right. It's right. not gone well so far. Not so far. Keep hope alive, Chris. All right. So that's kind of a downer note to start. I'm sorry. I will, we'll pick things up. This is going to be a good episode of the 252. As, uh, we're back just to the crew of Sam, Chris, and Chris. We're going to have a second segment where we actually dive into our syllabus for the yes. course, History and Politics of Sports. Because Chris and I actually had to do textbook adoptions. We do this, boy. Uh, October 1st and March 1st. Yeah. So it's four months ahead of when the actual semester yes. is done. If I was going to register for this course, what's the course number? Uh, it's a History POS 252L. Oh, 252. Mm-hmm. Okay. 252. Uh, yeah. Remember. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so anyway, we thought we should talk about what we're reading in this class. We'll talk about our yes. two textbooks. And then Chris and I are each going to talk about a few other things we might read. So that'll be segment two. But let's start with the news. There's a lot going on. One nice thing about doing these uh, every two two-week discussions is we've got a few things kind of stacked up. So let me start with the most recent thing. Uh, and maybe, Chris Moore, this is especially for you as a resident international relations expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the weekend, Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey uh, tweeted out, I think, actually a picture in support of the pro-democracy protests that have been going on for weeks, if not months now, in Hong mm-hmm. Kong. About six and a half weeks now. Now, unfortunately, you cannot find that tweet anywhere. He deleted it because almost immediately there was a backlash from numerous directions. The Chinese government, the Chinese consulate in Houston, the Chinese Basketball Association, a Chinese television network that just signed, like I think, a $5 billion deal to broadcast NBA games. games. And his own owner mm-hmm. uh, like, very quickly contradicted him. And you, uh, the ringer put out a story questioning whether Murray was going to lose his job over this. And he ended up putting out a two-tweet apology. And then I think he either last night or this morning, uh, Rocket star James Harden either tweeted or talked to a reporter essentially to express his support for the people and culture of China. He didn't say anything about Hong Kong, but... Um, what do we what do we make of that? It feels like this is going to be a really good thing for our third quarter when we talk about sports and international how, politics. How bizarre is this story? Could you have imagined a story like this um, in the early 1990s? No, no. Think about uh, in the wake of Tiananmen Square uh, and um, America sort of pushing China on human rights right. and democratic freedoms and protest and and, and, and and rights to assemble and rights to protest. Well, of course, but also and, at that time period, I mean, the NBA had started to get, so I don't know if Dresden Petrovich had come over, he'd started to get some international players, but sure. nothing like this. But of course, what, what adds to this all is that Houston was the 
team that signed Yao Ming, who exactly. is now the president of the Chinese Basketball Association. Mm-hmm. There's these deep connections. Rocket's very popular on TV. This is a very specific sales. issue for Houston. And Maury is but, on a trip. I think they're in Japan when this happened. They were doing an Asian tour and correct. playing some preseason games mm-hmm. in China. So this is, I mean, this is so fascinating. We What we really have here is Maury, who is taking what I would consider like sort of the American Cold War traditional view, sort of being very pro-democracy, very pro-freedom uh, of expression, kind of trying to needle places like China and, mm-hmm. and erstwhile the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and and and. Mm-hmm. And very quickly being snapped back by every layer of the American business establishment. Uh, Now, specifically, Houston has this issue because of its relationship with Yao Ming. Houston, I think, is one of the most popular teams in China as a consequence of that. They clearly have made the most inroads in marketing in China. uh, The NBA is looking at China as a a huge growth area. Yeah, it was. I mean, the NBA, it was, I forget who it was, but one of their marketing guys also had a statement on this as well. I'm sure they did. Yeah. It, well, and then the other layer to this that I noticed as I was watching this play out on Twitter is everyone who retweeted this in my timeline was a conservative in my timeline. Mm. And it was like they delighted in being able to then reverse needle the NBA, which in many ways is a very politically progressive league. Right. Uh, I don't know about the Rockets necessarily, but in terms of how these sports leagues got like, the NBA features a fair amount of political commentary for mostly African-American athletes. Right. And so to these conservatives on Twitter, it was it was like the hypocrisy of this what they called woke league suddenly, you know, sticking up for a regime that that clamps down democracy, supporting the Chinese government, million Uyghurs in Western China, and yeah, there's a lot of money to be made here. There is, and so I I think it does point to an interesting topic for us. I mean, multiple like me using platforms to make political statements, Mm -hmm. right? And the dangers of that, but also layers of sports business, and especially international sports business, where your partners might include uh, semi-authoritarian governments. Is that fair? Yes, but here's what I find interesting. I I love the NBA, Hmm? and I could name maybe five or six general managers of NBA teams. Daryl Morey is one of them. He's one of the most prominent general managers. But in the ranking of people who get press time and who are well-known by fans, the general manager is well below – the 10th player on the bench, and also the head coaching staff. This is not someone who normally makes waves. So the fact that Maury puts out a tweet supporting uh, supporting the Hong Kong democracy protesters, the umbrella movement, um, and there's this much reaction shows how sensitive both the Chinese government is to criticism um, at this level, but also how sensitive the NBA is to this the potential for this uh, this relationship. Absolutely. Well, that just seemed like a good story to kick us off from the weekend. Oh, this, so it's we, we are your breaking news leader, I think, for NBA coverage especially. Uh, let's go back a little bit further. And, and Chris, this story – it's been it's been percolating for a while, mm-hmm. and then finally kind of reached ahead this week. Or there's more to come. But uh, yes, can you, what can you tell us about the California? I think it's called the Fair Pay to Play Law, which Governor Gavin Newsom just signed right. into law, which will probably start now years of litigation. Right? Absolutely. This is um, something that California has thrown down the gauntlet to the NCAA, and we'll we'll we won't see the results of this for for <sighs> I would think a decade or more probably. But California's long been at the forefront of anti antagonism towards what they see as really an authoritarian control of college athletics by the NCAA. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the way the NCAA profits off of the amateur status and the enforcement of the amateur status of, of college players. Essentially, what Gavin Newsom signed into law is a law stating that uh, college players uh, can um, 
receive money from endorsements and from uh, – they can hire agents mm-hmm. and they can profit off of essentially their likeness and their namesake. Mm-hmm. And this dates all the way back to the early 1990s. There's a famous case featuring Ed O'Bannon uh, who played for UCLA mm-hmm. who sued uh, the NCAA because they licensed uh, NCAA basketball to – I believe it's EA Sports. Correct. Um, and – the game featured a likeness of Ed O'Bannon playing for UCLA, and he argued that he should profit off of his inclusion in the game. And this is this is the governor, this is the state of California getting involved in that. But it really does. Now, there's there's a couple ways this law is getting misinterpreted. One of the ways it's getting misinterpreted is the assumption it's going to go into effect immediately without mm-hmm. challenge. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen. This is going to be strung up in the courts for years, and it wouldn't shock me if this made its way to the Supreme Court. Right. But and I'm not a legal scholar. We would need oh, to bring like in antitrust for that. grounds. For, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. But imagining if it would go into effect immediately, which is not going to happen, then it would create a real disparity in recruiting standards because obviously a player could go to UCLA or USC and sign large endorsement deals and hire agents, which they couldn't do at Alabama or Ohio State. So – but that's not going to happen in the short term. In the short term, things will persist as usual, but this is going to, this is going to persist. Well, but in the short term, one thing that already has happened in at least a few state legislatures, similar bills are already out there. Exactly. I think, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Minnesota's governor even started talking, uh, mm-hmm. Governor Tim Walls, about pursuing this in the Minnesota state led. Because you're right, it does create for these power conferences, especially this major recruiting advantage for California schools and anyone else who follows. Um, There's a real recognition that uh, the current system is not acting in the best interest of the, of the of the athletes. Now, some of the schools that are opposing this are some of those power schools who mm-hmm. do benefit enormously from their athletic programs, uh, including my alma mater, um, the uh, – um, uh, the president of, of, of Notre Dame has been publicly in opposition to this law. So there have been some some vocal supporters of the NCAA in this matter. So speaking of that, uh, the president of Notre Dame is uh, John Jenkins, actually father yes. John Jenkins. There we go. I forget which order. And uh, I mean, one thing that it's always, this was before Newsom actually signed the legislation. So I think this is maybe two weeks ago. But there's a piece in the National Catholic Reporter on this, which I don't think they have a big sports section normally. Probably not. But it, they, they raised it because Jenkins, as a Catholic university president, had taken a stance against laws like this. Uh, I think it was actually back in 2015 is when he had first come out against essentially paying athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the author of the NCR, the Catholic Reporter article, said, well, what does Catholic social teaching have to say about this? And I, it actually made me want to put it on the reading list because it, it – it was a Christian response to something we're talking about, but it's also a Christian response to labor history. Mm-hmm. So this is rooted in 19th century. How does the church respond to industrialization? Does the church have something to say about what fair compensation is, what what just working conditions are? <laughs> and it appeals then to this sense of innate worth, innate dignity, the value of labor, and how it should be compensated mm-hmm. justly. So mostly I want to kind of flag that mentally for myself. Like this might be something to come back to Knowing that one way or another, we're going to talk about this question of how do we, what is the labor of college athletes worth? How is it? Because it feels like we can't do a two five two episode without talking about this. And, and it keeps coming back up. Exactly, right. And, I mean, let's play this forward a little bit. Where do you see this going? Assuming the Supreme Court does mm. not somehow quash the California law, and the NCAA <coughs> is going to have to adjust, or you know, competitors to the NCAA mm. emerge. Like, can we play this out a little bit? How would you guys imagine this going forward in say ten years? Well, if we're thinking if 
I don't know why I always ask these like future-facing kind of alternative right. history questions. I mean, the, there's 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 the, there's the catastrophic views on either side. The catastrophic would be the maintenance of the status quo. Um, the NCAA exerts enormous control over the amateur status of athletes, and they can't get paid. They get scholarships, and that's it. The other option is that um, everything is basically on the table, mm-hmm. and what you end up having is essentially a two-tiered system in college athletics, where a number of what we would consider to be Division One type schools right now essentially matriculate downward mm-hmm. towards essentially Division Two or even Division Three status. Mm-hmm. St. Thomas, I'm looking at you. Uh, and then we have um, a few schools, uh, maybe half of the Big Ten, most of the SEC, a few of the ACC schools who essentially decide, no, it's still in our interest to have these players and we will pay them. And essentially they, they become something like a separate entity from the NCAA. And I think people would watch that. Oh, yeah. Um, well, because it would be a feeder to the NFL. Exactly. You'd yeah. be, it would become the NFL's or, uh, or the, junior league yeah, or NBA something. Or whatever, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it seems like it'd be almost like the premiership, right? I mean, we're, we've mm-hmm. further narrowed – I mean, we've already done this at multiple levels with the NCAA. We're to the point where Division One has two different levels. But now it would simply – and these teams would only play each other then. Exactly. Right. But then the, the question then bec- – that, that immediately begs the question, why are colleges doing this? Why are universities doing this? How is this mission any kind of way other than it's incredibly lucrative for those schools to do it? But – Let's say – let's imagine, I don't know, one Mr. LeBron James hmm. who would have – had he has said on multiple occasions, had he gone to college, would have gone to Ohio State. Mm-hmm. How much would Ohio State had to have shelled out to get mm-hmm. LeBron on their, on their basketball team? And would they have done that? And at some point, would you say the team can't make money if it's paying LeBron uh, um, 14 or $15 million a year? Right. Which seems to be the antitrust argument and the restraint of trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only reason this works is they've essentially colluded with each other exactly. to reduce what they're spending on labor yes. in order to maximize their profits. Exactly. I, I mean, one historical analogy I've seen trotted out here is uh, the Olympics, right? Which was the mm-hmm. other kind of bastion of amateurism for mm-hmm. a long time. So like, well, in the 1970s, the US, U.S. Olympic Committee president was Avery Brindage. Essentially, said, over my dead body, will we ever pay our athletes? It'll be the death of the Olympics. And, of course, by the end of the 1980s, 90s, I mean, not just you have, like, the dream team of professional athletes, but, like, track athletes are getting endorsement deals right. and gymnasts and skaters and yes. skiers are all yes. getting endorsement deals. And now, as I don't even think anyone gives any thought to that, right? But there's no discussion of that. I, I don't know. Are there any amateurs left in the Olympics of this? I mean, I'm sure there's some... Probably NCAA athletes, right? Who, right. if they would actually take the endorsement, would lose their eligibility. The one that immediately comes to mind that I just don't know is boxing. Hmm. Is there a different status for boxers in the, in the Olympics versus, I don't know. I mean, it used to be, right? I mean, that was right. the class that so you would have to then go pro. Right. And this all just happens before the Olympics in most sports now. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, again, something we'll talk about. In fact, we'll, we'll come back to this in the second segment. Um, before we go, though, there is one other story that I think is still unfolding. And so we'll, mm-hmm. let's say this with the caveat of um, it's still a little unclear what's happening, but I think it's a significant story. So last Wednesday, I think the Wall Street Journal originally broke the story that Sports Illustrated was planning to lay off a substantial part of not just its workforce, but its newsroom staff. Right. Uh, and then there was going to be a meeting last Thursday, one to the people who are staying, one to the people who are leaving. Um, Washington Post reported the next day that they had pushed back the meeting, but they did. And WashPo numbers were something like 35 to 40 percent of the staff was going to be laid off with mm-hmm. like 
17, I think, writers getting severance packages. So Sports Illustrated hasn't said anything. But the backstory to this is that Sports Illustrated for a long time was owned by, used to be Time Life, and then Time Incorporated. I think two years ago, Time divesting itself of periodicals, right. sold Sports Illustrated to another publisher, which immediately Meredith, turned right. around and sold it to essentially a brand management agency that has no media experience. It doesn't have any publishing background or sports mm-hmm. connections. And this new uh, owner has decided to essentially turn over management of Sports Illustrated to a new media group called The Maven. And they fired their seven Of course, year. they're called The Maven. So they had an editor-in-chief who had been there for like seven years. He was, he was let go. So I, what's unclear is what this will actually mean. Like the, the, the owners put out press release saying this won't change the kind of distinctives of Sports Illustrated. Um, but a group of writers at Sports Illustrated warned like this is going to lead to a model where they're just kind of paying bloggers and right. I mean, it's something like content aggregators, content aggregators. Right. So we've talked a little bit about media and we should probably bring Scott Winter back at some point and talk about a few topics or journalism mm-hmm. professor, one of our journalism profs here. This seems like a significant story. Like even the last episode, we were talking to Angela Denker, who's a sports writer, and mm-hmm. she mentioned how excited she was to write a story for SI. Right. And I mean, this is um, a significant publication that not only kind of set the bar for sports reporting, but really was doing some great nonfiction writing and essay writing. I think of people yeah. like Frank DeFord. We mentioned his mid 1970s piece on sportianity in an mm-hmm. episode uh, in the spring. Um. I don't even know a question I'm asking, except maybe first, like, can something like that survive in the present sports slash media economy? Are we going to have a publication of that sort that does long form pieces, that does commentary like that? Or is that all being disrupted along with everything else in, in journalism? Well, I think there is some. I think the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm. So my take on this would be that it's unlikely that long form reporting is going to go away. In fact, the technological mediums actually benefit things mm-hmm. like long-form reporting. On the other hand, uh, I would expect the resources necessary to put together good reporting and a newsroom to back up investigative reporter or investigative writing and, and so forth will um, atrophy mm-hmm. and quite dramatically, perhaps. Now we have seen some investment in some channels in in the sports world. I'm thinking about the the Athletic, athletic for yeah. example, yeah. Uh, which is an online based um, um, sports reporting uh, site, and that can be run more cheaply. But the danger there is, of course, if the revenue starts to trickle away, you can always turn to more and more cheaper content options, mm-hmm. and the quality is probably going to suffer. One of the things that the Sports Illustrated could guarantee was a certain level of of quality uh, in a print publication. And I think that's in real danger of going away. Yeah, that, I, I was curious if either of you subscribed to The Athletic because that was the first thing that came to mind. And the difference with The Athletic is it's local, right? I mean, what it's actually disrupting are the sports pages of mm-hmm. the newspaper and often hiring away those writers, those columnists, or even sometimes like our local athletic just uh, hired Aaron Gleeman, who is a longtime twins blogger, wrote for Baseball Prospectus, <clears throat> now works for them. But it's a subscription model. And yep. I, I, even though I'm a pretty big sports fan, I have not yet pulled the trigger on subscribing, but I'm starting to wonder at what point do I have to? Like, where where am I going to get my news except by paying this local outlet to do it? Right. Well, and, and we're largely just media-wise in the middle of trying to figure out what are the paywalls worth mm-hmm. uh, worth paying your way over. Uh, I mean, streaming services, There's a there's there are multiple big things coming this, this, um, this fall. And 
sports will continue uh, to be part of that as contracts come up. So I think it's interesting to say, to think like, will people, how much will people continue to pay for sports writing? Right. You know, I think that's a, that, that seems like a, a big question. I, I don't subscribe to the athletic. No. And I generally, I don't think I subscribe to pay things with paywalls for, for written work. Yeah. Yeah. So I do I don't subscribe to the athletic, but I I'm gonna give a parallel example here of what, what worries me. So mm-hmm. I do subscribe to the Star Trip Online mm-hmm. and which is extremely affordable. I don't know if you've looked into that at all, oh, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. it's very cheap. And I'm sure it's being subsidized by the print version. Uh and I I do worry and I wonder if the print version of the Star Trip ever goes away and what they're left with is this online entity, would I continue to subscribe to it at four times the price? Right. Uh, and there's a sports page there, and I will. I'm happy with what uh, what kind of sports writing the Star Trip gives me. But if that goes away, would I then say, well, I guess I'll subscribe to the Athletic instead? And that's a seems like a viable outlet. Does okay. Well, yet more to come back to. Maybe in November we'll kind of do a journalism segment again. All right. So we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk about a different kind of writing, uh, textbooks, mm-hmm. and then other kinds of pieces we'd like our students in history, political science, two five two L to read in spring of 2020. in sports history. Atlanta, Georgia, October 7th, 1916. Several months after Cumberland University used its professional baseball players to beat Georgia Tech 22 to nothing, the Yellow Jacket football team got revenge, being a makeshift Cumberland squad 222 to nothing, the most lopsided result in college football history. The Georgia Tech coach, Nick Saban, close, John Heisman, John Heisman, would later get a trophy named after him. Phoenix, Arizona, October 8, 2005. The host Coyotes beat the Minnesota Wild 2-1. to one. The mm. successful coaching debut for NHL legend Wayne the Great One Gretzky. Just four years later, he retires from coaching with a losing record and zero playoff appearances. Oof. Las Vegas, Nevada, October 11, 1991. Chip Beck sets a PGA record by draining 13 birdies en route to a record-low score of 59 in the third round of the Las Vegas Invitational. The 59 record stands for another 25 years until Jim Furyk turns in a 58 at an event in Connecticut in 2016. And I'm California, October 12, 1986. Up three games to one over Boston in the American League Championship Series, the Angels have a 5-4 lead with two outs in the ninth inning. One strike away from the World Series, closer Donnie Moore throws a forkball to Red Sox outfielder Dave Henderson. To left field and deep and down he goes back and it's gone! You're looking at one for the ages here. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. All right, welcome back to segment two of this week's episode of the two five two. By the way, stay tuned. We'll be uh, we'll be promoting our next episode, which I think is a pretty good get for us, Chris. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, certainly, if you're a Bethel related person. Absolutely. All right, so stay tuned. We'll we'll talk about that in our closing segment. Uh, so in this segment, we're going to look at our reading list for the course that this podcast is is just previewing. I I kind of need to remind myself that we haven't actually taught this. No, it feels like it's had a pretty good life just as a podcast. But now we're actually getting close enough that we have to do things. 
like start refining our syllabus and adopting textbooks. And so, Chris, let's uh, just talk about the two that we chose, first of all. Yes. You know, like with most courses, uh, part of the the decision here is like how many books to actually require. And we opted for fewer of those than more of other kinds of things that we can assign maybe with a little bit more flexibility as we go. So I'm going to talk about the textbook textbook for the course, and then Chris will talk about one other. So uh, what we picked was a book called uh, Sports in American Life by a historian named Richard Davies. So this is, uh, you know, sports history is a relatively young field. This is relatively venerable. It's in its third edition. Mm-hmm. Um, we had two or three to look at. Uh, we picked this one partly because it was more affordable than another option, but also because it's, I think, a good supplement to what we're trying to do. And especially as a new course where neither of us are the expert, I think we wanted to be able to have a kind of textbook to fall back on where we can always assign students a few pages, if not a whole chapter, to read week in, week out, day in and day out. So it partly just maps well onto the list of topics we're doing. For example, mm-hmm. there's a whole chapter on sports business, uh, the relationship of um, like city government to franchises and stadiums, right. which sets up well a couple of the assignments which we're doing. We're going to end with a field trip to Target Field for a Twins game where we'll talk about what goes on like in 24 hours around Target Field be fantastic. beyond the playing field. But we'll also, we're also planning to do a kind of simulation Maybe right around midterm where student groups will have to um, make a pitch for either a new franchise or a new stadium. And we'll kind of think through public policy, environmental impact, economic impacts, civic engagement, all sorts of things like like that. I mean, I also like reading through the introduction to Davies' text. I think it, it resonates very strongly with something we've talked about here which is he describes sports as um, itself a social movement often Mm -hmm. and a force for change, but also it's where we find revealed maybe societal values that we don't even think about until we're in a moment and often a sporting moment. So he talks about 9-11 and the decision Mm. to pretty quickly go back to business as usual to play World Series games or ALCS games to to have football come back the next week. And almost intentionally so. Exactly. And and he says as maybe a statement of national resolve, but that's revealing, Mm -hmm. right? And it maybe means more than you would think it would at first glance. So that that's very much the spirit we're approaching the course in. And so it seemed to be matched nicely by, by Davies text. And then Chris, you recommended a book for our mm-hmm. third quarter where we talk about international relations, diplomacy, the Olympics will come up. Uh, right. what, what's that book? Well, it's called um, beyond the final score, the politics of sports in Asia. And I picked it um, primar- partially because of the content and partially because of the author. So Victor Cha is a uh, well-known um, uh, U.S. Korea expert. And in fact, got himself into a little bit of trouble with the current administration because um, he was sort of on tap to be the likely next uh, U.S. ambassador to South Korea. But because of some criticisms of the Trump administration, uh, basically got denied that that role. So he sort of returned to his his academic world. But this is but has had political this, experience, right? Absolutely. He was in the White House, correct? Which administration was that? Um, he was in the White House under the Obama administration right. early okay. on, too, okay. um, and is served in is sort of national security capacity. But um, as a Korean American, he's also interested in um, some of the the, the unfolding politics in in, in, um, in that area. And this book all precedes all of that drama, and it's about um, a comparison of the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing to some of the prior uh, Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, mm-hmm. and in Tokyo, Japan. Mm-hmm. And so it's looking at how, what those what those Olympic events meant to those countries, how they're portrayed, the role of nationalism in those uh, Olympics, and 
how the the roles of funding and trade and presentation. So I'm very interested in it's a relatively slim volume, mm-hmm. but it should give so, sort of a nice window, kind of like uh, um, our main text, into broader issues as revealed through sports. Well, and I think we did like the idea of maybe having one other book to work through. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you teach differently, you learn differently. If you have to wrestle with an argument unfolding over a whole text as opposed to most of the other pieces we'll talk about are relatively short blog exactly. posts, maybe journal articles once in a while. Right. So I, I'm excited to to read that. I mean, I think it's actually, uh, the hardcover is maybe 10 years old, paperback came out in 2011, but mm-hmm. I think it's still very timely. Yeah. So I'll be curious to see what students think of that. But beyond that, we did decide to cap it at just the two required books. And then from there, we're going to try to do our best to keep costs down for students, number one. But to take advantage of the fact that um, there's a number of pieces that are shorter, more focused on specific topics that we can give students to chew on day in and day out. And I think that's something really advantageous about this topic, too, because for a lot of our students, some of the basic parameters of what we're talking about are very accessible. Yes. If if this was a different kind of course, if you were teaching your World War I class or if I was teaching my terrorism class, we would probably use more books because Mm -hmm. you'd need more of that sort of introductory background information to make progress in the class. Here we can sort of lean on students having some familiarity with some of these sports some of the sports at least, and then introduce some of these, the history and politics sides of those things. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So we're going to just talk through a couple of these. We have a long three or four page reading list. I don't know yep. if we'll assign all of them, but uh, <laughs> just give a flavor of what we have in mind. Uh, let me start with, this is both a newer piece. It's in the current issue, October 2019 of the Atlantic Monthly. And also you'll see it has a connection to the California uh, Fair Pay for Play law uh, that we talked about earlier. So this is a piece by Jamel Hill. Uh, And so let me just start with the author. I I like this um, partly because Jamel Hill, you might know, worked for ESPN and um, revealed a kind of constant tension for ESPN, which is what happens when it's on-air talent, whether it's uh, Dan Levitard or SportsCenter anchor Mm -hmm. or reporter, gives political or social commentary. And Jamel is very concerned about issues of social and especially racial justice and came clear to her ESPN was not a place she wanted to work and has landed instead at the Atlantic Monthly where she mm-hmm. writes um, she writes a lot of online content as well. I don't know if this is her first print edition piece. But the one that she has in the current print issue uh, basically suggests this. What would happen if African-American basketball and football stars say good riddance to predominantly white Division One programs and instead attend one of the dozens of historically black colleges and universities in this country. So a little bit of the historical context here is after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, um, you get the beginning of colleges and universities aimed at freedmen, right? Mm-hmm. African-Americans. So Howard University in Washington, D.C. is probably the most famous. Yes. There are many others. Most of them are in the former Confederacy, although some go a little further. Right. Um, and for a long time, especially under segregation, played an enormously important role because it was a place where... For example, black middle-class professionals could be trained when they didn't have access to white-dominated institutions. Right. But they've also struggled in the last 10 to 20 years, partly because, like most private colleges, uh, they're dealing with enrollment issues. But there also is the question, like, what need is there for these schools? Mm. And some some of them have lost accreditation. Um, Howard's probably doing fine. But yes. many others, you know, are, are in a kind of interesting realm. And so for that reason, I think... Hill was interested in, you know, maybe we should be supporting these institutions as African-Americans. But also, she's written several pieces critical of the NCAA for a lot of the same reasons we've already talked about. And so she starts this article by talking about being at a Duke basketball game 
or it was early in the season. It was it was non-conference, and it, you know, like most of these big power conference schools, Duke brought in essentially sacrificial lambs, <laughs> and I forget. I think it was a North Carolina HBCU. And it paid them a certain amount of money to come and to be humiliated. To lose to do. Yeah, and, and Hill talked about sitting there watching black athletes on both sides play for the entertainment of an overwhelmingly white crowd and feeling uncomfortable about that. And it turns out that, you know, the vast majority of athletes in the two power sports, basketball and football, are African-American. Mm-hmm. But the larger student population, it's 95% white, mm-hmm. right? And the moneyed interests attached to them are white. And so she's asking the economic question, which is an old one in African-American history. What, why should we perform for the benefit of of, of the privileged majority? What, why right. not instead serve historically black institutions? And so mm-hmm. she had noted that a couple of prospects actually had visited Howard. And another one did this past week. And she asked, like, what would happen, for example, if the Fab Five hadn't gone to Michigan? Right. I mean, 25 some years ago, 30 years ago. Instead, gone to a place like Howard or Grambling right. or another of these historically black schools. And, and so I thought it was an interesting piece because it's at the intersection of race and labor and education and sports. It's provocative. I think it'll be surprising to our students. But I think the more you pick at it, um, it raises at least some interesting questions. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about that. Now, the spinoff of this. Uh, have you heard of the Historical Basketball League? No, but I'm excited to find out. Have you heard of an economist named, I wrote it down so I got it, uh, Andy Schwartz. I think he's from California. No. Okay. Uh, so Andy Schwartz uh, is um, wants to disrupt the NCAA. And as, so as apparently many people do today. Right. So so he had actually already come up with this thing called the Historical Basketball League. And what he's trying to get is a dozen historically black colleges and universities to join this to agree to pay athletes to come participate in what initially would be a summer league, but they would be students at the schools mm-hmm. and essentially to opt out of the NCAA. And so he'll do a follow up after Gavin Newsom signed the California law, pointing people back to this story. Now, it's unclear whether this is actually going to start next summer or what the time frame mm-hmm. is. But just to say, there actually is a movement to try to capitalize on this and to try to get essentially black stars to say, forget this, we can make money before we go pro. Mm-hmm. And it would then have uh, ancillary benefits for these schools that are struggling with enrollment and endowment and, and other issues. So. Just a brief follow-up to that. Okay, I talked for a long time. I love it. Chris, I love it. what's your first article or post or podcast or whatever you want to share? I'm going to save my weird one for my second one. So I'll I'll talk about something that I'd like to start the semester with, just getting our students to think about sports in a social science historical kind of way. Mm -hmm. And that is um, to think about the relationship between – um, sports and political attitudes. Mm-hmm. So views about sports and political attitudes. And so there's a nice piece that came out um, in Public Opinion Quarterly, uh, which um, is the kind of journal that academics subscribe to and no one else, right. um, by Thorson and Serrazio um, talking about just, just this. And basically, it was, a, it was they conducted a fairly uh, large-scale survey asking people about their attitudes towards sports, but then also their political views. And some things probably won't surprise us. Uh, some sports do lean in certain partisan directions. It wouldn't surprise anybody listening to this that NASCAR uh, viewers tend to lean conservative. Mm. Um, but other things might be kind of interesting. So uh, baseball can swing progressive or conservative more so depending on the region it's occurring in sure. rather than anything to do with the sport itself. And 
there's just a lot of there's a lot of meat to chew on in this article. So I'm excited to expose students to sort of thinking about some of the relationships, not necessarily causal relationships, uh-huh. but correlative relationships uh, between some of these uh, attitudes. I love it. I was so excited to see it because we've had this idea that the first week would almost be like a warm up. Yeah. Like in a sense, you're right. This is a very accessible topic, I think, for the students who will come either because they've played sports or they've watched sports. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think one thing we do have to do to, to stretch, so to speak, is get them to think about how is this an academic category and how right. do you analyze it and evaluate it. Mm-hmm. And so this is good because it presents a methodology for doing that that then also starts to point at some of our larger questions that go beyond the court field, exactly. rank, et cetera. Okay. Um, my second piece I'm just going to mention is from what I think is the defunct ESPN, the magazine, speaking of disruption. That's true. But I think a really good long read. Uh, this is by uh, Tim Keown went and spent a lot of time with then Houston Texan running back Arian Foster, who has since retired. Mm-hmm. So this is 2015. And it's fascinating because uh, Arian Foster, um, very unusually for pro athletes, but certainly he was an SEC. He was at uh, Tennessee, I think. Yes. So in the middle of the Bible Belt, Arian Foster is an atheist and had grown up actually in a Muslim home, but very free-thinking parents who encouraged him to ask his own questions and decided, even before he got to college, that he did not believe um, in, in God of any sort, uh, whether Allah, Jesus, whoever. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a profile of what it's like then to be an outspoken atheist uh, in the middle of, first, a college in the Bible Belt where the coach, Phil Fulmer, would they do team, build, team building exercises at local middle-class white suburban uh, megachurches. Mm-hmm. You would do prayer before and after games. Uh, and then entering into the NFL. And uh, Foster's brother actually calls him the anti-Tebow at one point. <laughs> but there's also a fascinating little bit where they um, he strikes up a friendship with, I think it's Justin Forsett. He was a running back mm-hmm. as well for a while. Yes who was a preacher's kid who had kind of had the opposite direction. He'd grown up in a religious household, went to Cal Berkeley for college. Mm. But they ended up being good friends, partly because they could talk honestly with each other about you know, why they believed what they believed. And um, I, I just found it a really distinctive profile of a fairly unusual athlete, mm-hmm. but maybe a more common one as the spiritual but not religious secular population grows. I don't think we should assume that religion and sports will continue to go together. We might be seeing more Arian Fosters. And after this piece, Foster has remained fairly outspoken yes. on issues like CTE and other things as well. So I think he, I think it's good to look, to look at his influence. That's yeah. great. Okay. What's your second, Chris? Okay. Hang with me here. This is going to be a little bit of a ride. Um, <laughs> I, I pulled this piece actually from some of my grad school reading and it is sport. And, but it's but sport, not a sport we've talked but about. But not a sport we've talked about and probably won't talk about anywhere else in the class. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to read this was because I wanted students to be exposed to something which is clearly sport, deeply meaningful, and way outside of all their cultural context. And it's a piece about Balinese cockfighting. Um, Clifford Geertz is an anthropologist. And this is an old piece. It wasn't published until 2005. But really, the, the majority of the piece was written back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's Geertz's uh, notes about traveling with his wife. in Geertz, Pop- he sounds great. Yes. <laughs> Geertz, um, right? <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's about him traveling to in, in Bali and getting essentially not only to a 
a cockfight, mm-hmm. which is illegal, uh, but then having the cockfight itself being busted up by the cops and him, along with everyone else, running from the from the Balinese police, um, and then that really being the entree into which he is accepted in the community uh-huh. and is then able to basically, because he has this shared illicit experience, uh-huh. uh, he's able to make greater inroads into his field research. But, but just the way he writes as an anthropologist, uh, trying to, in a deep way, describe what's happening at this fight mm-hmm. and and yes we um there is uh, a real freudian way in which this uh, can uh, the the masculinity of the chickens it connects the masculinity of the men who it's are not just them. a chicken it, it is not just a chicken okay very clearly and so um uh, i but 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 sort of having students read not just you know in a a quantitative article mm-hmm. uh, about public opinion data, but really a, a thickly descriptive article um, from an anthropologist. I thought was a useful thing to have our students do in a, in a 200-level L class. Wow. I think this class might actually work. I think it might. It might actually be good or something. Okay, this is very exciting for us. Hopefully it was fun for you. We'll share links to whatever we can share of these pieces on our Facebook page. This is also a good point at which to mention that if you're on Twitter, you can actually follow at the 252 podcast. And we've been sharing some links there um, as well as other content. So we'll be right back to wrap up this episode. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. All right, we're almost done. Let's do three to see. Uh, Chris Moore, why don't you start us off? <laughs> I'd love to. I'm feeling I'm about um, to be trolled. A little bit. From October 18th to the 20th, all eyes will turn to Rotterdam as this fine Dutch city plays home to DreamHack, a significant fall stop in the esports calendar. Specifically, there will be an open championship for Counter-Strike Global Offensive, as well as Season 12 of the Corsair Dream League, which is a Dota league. Chris, do you know what Dota is? I do not know. I will buy you lunch to what Dota is. Um, now, before you fire your derisive comments like so many ranged attacks in Dota, here is some context. DreamHack Rotterdam is one of the dozen or so regional matches that add up to a tournament season. Think of it as like the Greater Hartford Open of esports. And yet, the CS... Is Chip Beck of, or Jim Furyk of esports? You know what? There actually for? are some, like, I'm uh, sorry. We need to finish. Teams. All right. The, the CSGO tournament has a prize pool of 100K, and the Dota League has a prize pool of 250K. That's what, what currency is this? Dollars. What? It's crazy. There's serious money in the top level of esports gaming, guys. Yeah, okay. That raises all sorts of questions. But, Sam... Uh, October 18th, on the campus of Morgan State University, the St. Francis Academy Panthers of Baltimore, Maryland, which is the number two ranked high school football team in the nation, will face IMG Academy, the IMG Academy Ascenders from Bradenton, Florida, who are ranked number four in the nation. So there are uh, there's a handful of top 50 recruits on this, including um, uh, Elias Ricks and Delmon Capehart, uh, who are on the IMG team. St. Francis has Chris Braswell, a defensive end who's headed to Alabama. So uh, it's just cool. I don't know why teams from different parts of the country are playing each other. I don't know where the money comes from, but 
It should be. Is this should broadcast be somewhere, or how do people? I don't know. I, oh, just, okay. I was looking for top high school football. I mean, ESPN matches. does do that. There's kind this of like a national be, yeah. high school <clears throat> sort of. Circuit. And for the next episode, there's one that probably will be awesome. All okay, right, nice. well, that was real research. I'll be lazy and say we're only a couple weeks into the conference schedule for the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, but there's already a showdown looming on Saturday, October 12th, when undefeated Bethel University heads into Collegeville, Minnesota, to take on the undefeated St. John's Johnnies. Both teams are in the national top ten for NCAA. Division three, and the winner will likely end up with a berth in the NCAA playoffs. Hey, by the way, on Thursday, October 24th, we'll be doing our next interview episode. And Chris, who is our guest? We're excited to welcome uh, head coach of the Bethel Royals, Steve Johnson, to the it, booth. I think we are genuinely excited. Steve Actually. is not only enormously successful, but a pretty interesting guy who have a lot to say, not just about football and coaching, but about Christian higher education and athletics as part of it. And that. it's a live so, event you can come so to. So this is a live podcast. It'll be Thursday, October 24th, starting around 1115. If you're on campus, it's CC 429. This is the new home of the history and political science departments. Chris, wrap us up. On behalf of my colleagues here in this room and all throughout Bethel University, it's Beat Johnny's Week. Go Royals. Go Royals.